This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we both like history. I think True. people should know that. Um, My heart beats for of... dead people. I, I told that to parents when I did parent night. <laughs> you do like the I see dead people jokes or something? Oh, like... no. I don't want to no. spoil the movie. Yeah. <laughs> You remember Flocabulary? Flocabulary, he does like music stuff. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, these group of dudes who like started making like these rap songs about con- specific historical content and oh. other subject areas. It's like on one level, it's cool because like you're integrating hip hop into like the curriculum. And the other level, it's like not very good hip hop. Um, so like you kind of have mixed feelings about it. Should I not say that? Is that not nice? These are like real people. <laughs> I mean, you listen, hey, they, they're making a product. They get the criticism. They make money. Like us educators, people can't don't get to say I'm a bad teacher because I'm doing it for not much money. Okay. <laughs> they, I remember in a district, uh, it was in Oklahoma City Public Schools, they pulled vocabulary because there was a song talking about old dead white men. Um, I don't remember the exact song, but that was it. And somebody was very offended at that phrase, which I found rather interesting because I was like, well, they are old. Aren't they old and also dead and they white? They are dead and they were white. I don't know if they're still white. I don't I don't know enough about science to know how the body decays. I think but bones, so if I know anything from Halloween, bones are, are white or glow in the dark. Okay. I, probably the latter mainly. But I think one hard thing when talking about history that I know I've struggled with before is how do you talk about individuals who were clearly racist in yeah. racist societies, right? And I, we still have those issues today. I don't want to pretend that those are just historical issues. They're contemporary issues. But, you know, how much how much do you assign blame to individuals and not systems of racism, you know? Oh, that's interesting. I Oh, that is interesting. I feel like there's always the cop-out thing that's like um, – no, don't worry, because everyone was racist back then, and slavery was just, everyone was doing it, which is just bold, like... Yeah, it's like not true. Lafayette <laughs> was totally hanging out with Washington in the 1780s, and was like, hey, you shouldn't do this. The Quakers were visiting Washington in the 1780s, and were like, hey, man, this isn't right. So it's not like people didn't know in the 1780s that slavery... Right. Also, they were using language of, like, slave... They were, like, the British are enslaving us, realizing that they knew that it was wrong. Like, really? There's... A Sorry. lot of evidence of it, right? And people wrote about it, and Thomas Jefferson had to take out the slavery right, components he put it right in, the thing. in the Declaration of Independence in the first draft. Uh, Washington's life is an example. He had all kinds of pressures from having, you know, uh, bringing enslaved people, including Ona Judge, who we've discussed on a previous episode, into New York. And after being in Philadelphia, where slavery was almost gone. And so there was no question that there was a lot of debate in that time, which is why George Washington had to wrestle with those ideas, but eventually decided really not to, you know, completely disregard it, those those you know, maybe norms among some of his peers at his time, 
and actually live up to kind of some of the, the, the struggles he had. And so, you know, how much do we just talk about George Washington was racist, which he was, of course. Yeah, that is interesting. I feel like when you talk about maybe it's easier to say like, oh, society was different back then. And these were just the, the racist people back then. And today we're totally not the case. It must be hard to like to like if you just say like, yo, George Washington's racist or this person's racist. That seems like it is. I don't know. I feel like that. That seems more difficult, maybe. But I don't know why. And while it's true, I feel like the context, historical context is super important, right? I think that if we want to talk about George Washington's racism, it's important to go understand the context in which he lived, right? Which he lived in Southern plantation society on Mount Vernon. He, he lived shortly in Philadelphia. He lived in New York. And so understanding those contexts really helps us understand the actual systems. So I think the details are actually really important. And then at the end of that, you can come away and really understand, like, what did he do in terms of his society at the time mm -hmm. so it's difficult to talk about racism as an individual thing but you and i seem a little stumped yeah still having some questions if only there was someone else we could bring on board someone... i know right wait is we we do have someone then is this where you like just saw them like you're just now seeing them oh my that... goodness <laughs> he's on our call he's muted right now <laughs> How did he get in here? We would like to welcome into the podcast, John Wills. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah. And, and sorry we didn't notice you there the whole time. <laughs> it was a really wonderful intro. Very nice. Well, thank you. I don't know if we, we knew what we we're talking about, but uh, before we talk about your amazing work, can we t learn a little bit about your background in education? Yeah. So I have a PhD in sociology. Actually, I, I sort of come at this from a different angle than I think most people. So I have a PhD in sociology with an interest in sociology of culture and knowledge. And so what I'm really interested in, in education, actually, is how school knowledge informs students' political discourse, particularly around issues of race and ethnicity and racism. And that fits also with them looking at U.S. history in particular and issues of inclusion and exclusion and representation. So where do you find racial and ethnic groups? If they're there, how are they present, where and when? Are they interacting with other people or are they passive? Um, and how they pop in and out of the narrative. And so I've never been a public school teacher. I'll just admit that now. I have been involved in training teachers and teacher education. And I am involved in teaching courses now at UC Riverside, where I am. But I come at this a little different than I know a lot of the people you have on have been teachers and then move up and, and get their doctoral degrees and move on. And we are happy to have different voices on. So thank you again for agreeing to, to meet with us. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. we can't. We must tell you, you're also um, following in the footsteps of UC Riverside colleagues, Joe, Joe Kahn and Erica Hodgen, who were previously on. And they're both really smart, too. So something good is happening at UC Riverside. There you go. That's good company to be in if I'm included in that. So, John, you've recently published in Theory and Research in Social Education, which is no small feat. So first, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So the intro quotes to this article are, Daniel was racist, individualizing racism when teaching about the civil rights movement. I just have a question right off the bat. Are you talking about me? And if you're saying I was racist, maybe actually that just means I've made progress. 
Well, it's not about you, actually. It was a quote from a student in one of the three classrooms that I was in. Yes, you're off the hook now. And it actually replies, <laughs> it refers to Daniel Dyer, who has a, a shadow read conversation with Lisa Delpit in some curriculum materials that they used in the three classrooms I was observing. And so a student's response was that Daniel was racist. And it's in the title of the piece because it really focuses on how the teachers addressed race and racism in the history curriculum, but they really individualized it. And so while there are aspects that address structural and institutional and systemic racism, the primary way that racism was understood and represented uh, was among individuals who had prejudices, racial stereotypes, biases, and then um, acted on those biases. So can, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about how this whole study kind of took shape? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've done a number of studies before looking again at these issues of inclusion and exclusion and representation of diverse peoples in U.S. history at the elementary and at the secondary level, middle school. And so I wanted to go to the high school level in particular because I'd heard students talk before about race and ethnicity and racism in terms of sort of denying it in the present by going to history and saying, well, there are no slaves anymore. My parents came here later as an immigrant. We never owned slaves. Right. So I want to look at 20th century history to see what the kind of conversations were there. And so my you know, larger research interests are how students, what they learn in history classrooms can inform their political discourse, particularly on race and ethnic relations. And so this larger study was going to three 11th grade U.S. history teachers classes, um, sitting in their classes on a daily basis for seven months to see how they were basically teaching 20th century U.S. history across four units that were thematically organized. So the paper reports on one unit, the civil rights unit, which focused primarily on the civil rights movement, because this was one of the main places, except for one other part in the curriculum, where they explicitly addressed race and racism in U.S. history. It was part of the curriculum. It was part of practice in the classrooms regularly. And so I want to understand what they used in terms of materials. And they used a lot of different materials to teach the civil rights movement in particular to address race and racism during that period in U.S. history. So I want to look at that um, and understand then sort of what representations of racism were privileged, which ones were not and sort of faded to the background. And what you find is over time, they really built up an account of racism that represented it almost exclusively as individual prejudice and discrimination and really ignored any indications of larger racism, a systemic phenomenon, um, part of everyday life for African-Americans then and now, and also how it's structural and built into institutional practices, legal policies, et cetera. They talked about race and racism in mm -hmm. the civil rights unit. What was the other part in the seven months you were there they talked about it? Interestingly enough, they did. The second unit I observed was on U.S. foreign policy, 19, 1850 to 1950. And so gotcha. during that, they addressed U.S. imperialism. And so, you know, they looked at political cartoons at the time that were pro or anti-imperialist. They talk about the white man's burden. They talked about um, racial superiority and notions. And so they really did actually discuss racism quite, you know, exhaustively at that time in images and in text and that sort of thing. What's interesting, though, and you often find this in the literature on how we deal with race and ethnicity in the history curriculum, they did not connect any of that work to the civil rights movement. So sort of like, here's how people thought during imperialism. Here's these images that really denigrate people of color, indigenous populations as being um, inferior, being childlike, being monkeys. 
And then none of that is connected then later to the civil rights movement when they again return to race and racism. And in between those two periods, there's, there's virtually no talk at all about it. Interesting. It's interesting because even in his, history textbooks that are used in schools, I, there's this incredible move that people do to hide racism, and it's called passive language. And what they do is oftentimes they will say things like, you know, even when they're recognizing systems of racism exist, like they take the people out of it. And so when I talk to students, I may have used this example before, for example, about Rosa Parks case, I often want them to be able to discuss with their students why the white bus driver and white policemen enforce these laws, right? Because um, we were just talking in class the other day when they basically asked her if she had broke the law. Her question back was, why do you push us around mm -hmm. to the police That's officers, right. which is just incredibly powerful. And the officer's initial thing, first thing he said was, I don't know. Right. But, and I think, but basically you're under arrest. No, that's right. And I think, you know, that's not a typical. And I found that in past research on my own, that it's difficult oftentimes, you know, you focus on the struggle for civil rights. You focus on the activities of African-Americans and others who are working together to bring about change. And you never give voice to the segregationist voice. You never give voice to actually who they're struggling against. Um, and that's just not individuals, but it's a social order you know, based on white supremacy, based on racial notions of racial superiority and looking at that and really fully fleshing out that context so that you situate the people that are active within it. I mean, I, I guess I will say just to go on. So one of the, I think, good things about what the teachers were doing here, and I just want to underscore, these were three very good teachers. And the focus for the civil rights unit wasn't race and racism. They were addressing it explicitly when it came up and weren't afraid to do that. But the focus was really on how you bring about change, how people are involved, you know, a sense of civic agency communicated to the students. But so what they were very good at here was sort of disrupting these master narratives of the civil rights movement that focus exclusively on Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, you know, maybe another few other individuals, but really don't give a sense of the overall movement. And so they were very good about using materials from reading like an historian, um, using this choices unit, choices in Little Rock, that was I've from facing history and ourselves. Right. And so they really did an excellent job of populating the civil rights movement with a multitude of people, of organizations. So the, the students really had a sense that this was a movement. It wasn't one or two iconic individuals. It was a whole movement of ordinary people that united together to fight for social justice. And so that's sort of one of the, the positive things. And that sort of historical inquiry approach, other people have talked about that inside of that, is a way to really present the civil rights movement in a way that captures the experiences and perspectives of people of color that are often ignored. And so that sort of focus was very useful in the class, and it really did populate the civil rights movement extensively with lots of ordinary people. But in the paper, I argue at the same time, the flip side of that is because of this focus on individual choices, individual perspectives, individual actions, that, that the focus on history is on lots of individuals making change together. When they turn to racism, then it's sort of sort of a natural curricular context then to say, oh, I'm thinking about racism. It means I'm thinking about individuals. And so that's why the piece is really showing this process whereby over time, because of that emphasis on looking at how individuals can come together to bring about social change, their focus was always on individuals, which means when they turned to racism, they were thinking about individuals who are prejudiced and how discriminatory in the actions they might take. 
rather than thinking about the larger context, a racialized social order, social structure built on white supremacy and white superiority that advantages whites at the expense of people of color. And I think that really disables students in a way, at least in my interest, in using their history to think about a contemporary U.S. society. So we have racism as a problem today. If they use the history and think about racist individuals and weren't really outfitted to think beyond that, they're really at a disadvantage in trying to address race and racism in the United States today. I mean, it's a structural and systemic phenomenon. Even the Democratic candidates for the presidency are talking about systemic racism. And so there's a lot of good going on in the classrooms in some ways, but I think that also that effort unintentionally and, and really unforeseen by the teachers sort of is not necessarily the best way to outfit students to think about racism in complex ways. So what what is your suggestion that you come up with in the paper for what teachers can do? If racism and race are typically individualized, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned teaching about social order systems. How, how could you see that being done? Well, there is, for example, so there are resources in the materials they do themselves, like the choices in Little Rock, in fact, take a close look at the Little Rock Nine and what happens in t- inside Central High School and the efforts to efforts to integrate the school. And what's interesting is that when they utilize the materials, the kinds of questions that are asked that they pursue actually deflect attention from that. So I'll, I'll give you an example from the paper. So one example is when Elizabeth Eckford is confronted by the mob on the first day of school and Hazel Bryant and that iconic image is behind her screaming at her. The materials ask you to analyze and the the teachers follow this to look at the crowd and think about who's actually involved in the way Hazel Bryant is who might be racist and who actually are maybe just bystanders. And so that sort of focuses on on, um, trying to figure out the individual motivations and perspectives of the people there. And it really comes down to deciding, are they racist or not? Like Daniel Dyer, who's an earlier person in the curriculum who is identified by the student as racist. And so rather than doing that and looking at it that way, that's actually deflecting attention to racism as a social order. So the different question is, if I'm looking at the crowd, even if they're not participating, even if they're bystanders, how is it that at this point in time, these white students in a white community based on segregation like this that's enforced by de jure segregation at the time, how are they benefiting? How are they advantaged by their whiteness? in all sorts of local institutions and police enforcement and healthcare and all those things. And there are other pieces in the curriculum that also address that. So I think what I argue in the paper is there's a number of places where you could shift perspective. And I think that's, you know, fundamentally for the teachers, I think this is about perspective. If you're thinking about race and racism, what should you be looking at? And I think primarily, and you hear this in popular discourse in the United States, um, primarily people look at individuals who are either racist or anti-racist, but it all comes down to that as if they're somehow not participating in a culture. They're not drawing on ideologies in a racialized social system that explain differences in, say, educational attainment based on race or explain um, wealth and income differences based on race that are really individual phenomenons. They're structural and systemic ones. And so part of it is um, I give some other examples of that in the paper where they could rework what they do with the curriculum. But I think fundamentally, it's a perspective teachers need to have on race and racism that just from the get go, they would have done different things, frankly, with how they approach the civil rights movement um, unit. It seems like one problem is also this question of are they racist as if it's a binary? 
right? <laughs> yes. um, it's because it's it, a lot of times I, I hear people discuss this without unpacking what we mean mm-hmm. by racism. Yeah. Um, and I think what you're probably suggesting is that, you know, a definition of racism that if you benefit from racist status, you could be considered racist on some level, right? Or a mem- as a member in a racist society who's privileged, especially if you're not anti-racist, you're not actively anti-racist. Yes, I, I think that is really the issue, actually, is that, you know, people, and I often do this actually in an undergraduate teach I course on, a course I teach on education for diverse society, but, you know, I use myself. I mean, I'm white, I'm middle class, I'm, you know, a successful professional. You know, if you if you attack me sort of in the way that we think about individual racism in terms of um, stereotypes and, you know, calling me names and, and attacking me that way, that really doesn't do anything to dislodge my structural location. The advantages I get from being white and able to perform whiteness interactionally, be able to see be as being cult- culturally normative, if you will. And so it doesn't do anything to disrupt that. And so there are people who argue like Eduardo Benio Silva, who cited in the paper, He does make an argument that if you only think about individual psychological dispositions and individual racist, you're actually misunderstanding the phenomenon that if we're all participating in a system that's based on racial superiority and yields advantages and power and privilege for whites at the expense of people of color, then, yes, it's it's not a critique of your moral value as an individual to acknowledge that the system is empowering and privileging you at the expense of others. And so it really is breaking this myth of an open an equal opportunity structure where everyone has an equal chance to succeed in American society, regardless of background, which is the you know privileged discourse in American society. And so Robin DeLangelo's book, White Fragility, I think is very nice on this, actually. She starts with that and says, you know, if you start with individual conceptions of racism, when you try to have discussions or conversations about this, White people immediately feel like they're put in a position of questioning my moral value, my moral worth, my morality as an individual. And I would say that's sort of beside the point. Once you realize that you exist in a system based on white supremacy and based on advantages and disadvantages based on your racial background, you have a decision to make. You can join a fight for social justice and you become a change agent, which the students are encouraged to do. And I think the way the curriculum approaches actually facilitates them seeing themselves as being agents, as being individuals who can make change. But it sort of points them in the right direction to know what that is, that you're attacking structures, you're attacking laws, you're attacking institutional policies and practices. You're not looking for individual races who need their consciousness raised. that's, That's not a model for change. And it really doesn't address, I think, the the reality of the phenomenon, if you will. So... Can I I ask you a question that goes back to our discussion at the beginning of the podcast? Yeah. And I'm going to ask you a question about a question. This is a very (laughs) professor thing to do, right? (laughs) My favorite question to ask students is, why did I ask that question? Yeah. (laughs) I do that too. (laughs) Um, And so my question is, is what was my question, is George Washington racist? Mm -hmm. Is that the wrong question? I, I think it is. I think the... The way to enter with George Washington is to say, you know, uh, how is he participating in constructing and furthering and perpetuating a kind of society and a culture, because it's cultural as well in terms of meaningful practices and understandings that are shared? How is he building a racialized social order that's empowering whites at the expense of people of color? And so 
that I think is to say, and I'll, I'll just say this is one of the, I think, problems or puzzles we haven't solved yet about linking the past to the present. I mean, part of also that is that if you look at Washington as a racist, well, he doesn't, he's not alive anymore. That's in the past. We've moved on from that. And it's not clear from U.S. history how his being a racist at that time is connected with stop and frisk in New York City when that was a policy. And I would argue, well, they're all connected. It's a continuous history of race and racism that's racialized certain groups. That means that if you're not able to embody whiteness, you're not structurally located in a position, advantages accrue or disadvantages grew over time that get handed down through generations. And so if you ask, was well, Washington racist? We could just say, well, yeah, he is, but. But then that means turning to a serious examination of the times he lived in, how that and what we built then is a continuous building of the society and culture we live in now and how that's all connected. And I'll just say, um, having said that, I'm not, I guess, naive or idealistic enough to say, oh, boy, teachers could do that right away because this is a really heavy lifting. I mean, one of the things we continually see in the research is the confinement of different groups, different racial and ethnic groups to specific, specific periods in time. So they pop in and out of U.S. history. So the sense that everything's connected that you're actually building something that's here right now, we just don't teach it that way. And the, stu the students that I interviewed, a dozen or so of them, said things like that about the history. They learned to say, well, you know, it was horrible and all that. And they were really, frankly, shocked at the violence, um, racial violence in the civil rights movement. But at the end said, well, but that was the past and, and it's over now. Well, well, it's not over. I mean, this is why you want a structural or systemic rather than an individual. It's not over. It created a reality that exist right now, and that's it. And you individualize it. It's funny, the way they talk is, so in the curriculum, individuals who are racist like Daniel Dyer is a consequence of segregation. And so to the extent that you have racist individuals left today, it's sort of this holdover that's passed down in families or communities through generations. So the students in telling me this are also assuming that well, of course, things are better now because people are dying off and it's not being passed on. So they're assuming a world where racism will disappear in some extent because it's lodged in individuals and that population of individuals is getting smaller and smaller. If you see it as a systemic or structural phenomenon, it's not going away. That's not how it works. And you don't need racist individuals to have racist outcomes in policies and practices and laws, et cetera, that privilege whites over at the expense of people of color. Unfortunately, our, cor our courts have seemed to do that, too, right? That they've assumed you think in affirmative action cases in mm -hmm. desegregation cases, they've assumed things would get better over time. And I think Michael and I have talked about this before, but one of the historical thinking concepts that often is mm -hmm. taught is continuity and change. Mm -hmm. And with with racial um, issues, we often like to focus on changes that were like milestones. And we yes. forget to focus on the continuities of racism that often like Brown versus Board is the easiest example because we like to point to it like at desegregated schools. And then you can go look everything at everything was fine today. after that. Yeah, well, right. Right. I mean, to the extent that that, you know, it didn't address residential segregation, which is a consequence of government policies and laws at this federal and state and local level. If you don't change residential segregation, then you can't affect school segregation. And that's why it continued. Those things are linked very closely and systemically, because then that's linked to health outcomes. It's linked to income inequality and wealth. It's linked to environmental pollution and you're, you know, whether you're there or not. I mean, 
UC Riverside is not disappoint with really heady discussions. Oh, thank you. Thank you very I much. I know. Two, we're two for two on episodes. We should just really just make this a UC Riverside podcast. <laughs> well, I could talk to my colleagues about that. There's a lot smarter people than me there. We could go there. I mean, if you know, uh, I hear it's, well, is it sunny? What we're angling for is couldn't you get some kind of grant from the university to bring us out? We'll just go oh, around yeah. and talk to everyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, I'll talk to Joe about that. He can probably wrangle something. Yeah. Woo-hoo. So you've definitely given us a lot to ponder, and you definitely pointed to very specific ways in which teachers can focus more on systemic racism. Definitely make sure you check out the article from TRSE. What other advice or takeaways do you have for uh, classroom teachers who, well, just want to do it better? Yeah, I, I guess the, I mean, I've talked about sort of the change in perspective and having a continuous history of race and racism. So I, I guess the other thing I would say, which I tell the pre-service teachers I work with all the time that I teach, work with your colleagues. You know, nobody's going to do this on your own. And you have great ideas when you collectively get together. And the, the three teachers I worked with, I researched, were on a team of five. And so they regularly met every week. And I went to their planning meetings where they collaborated, where they found resources. This is how they came across Facing History in Ourselves for the Civil Rights Unit. And so if you collaborate with your colleagues, that's a way, I think, to find materials, to put a curriculum together and really you know, learn from each other and develop this perspective. I mean, I'll say this. This perspective on race and racism is not an easy one. It's hard to keep your grasp on. It can be slippery at times. And there's a lot in popular culture that's sort of leading you away from that to think in colorblind ways and think in ways that where it's individualized. Again, you're thinking about individual racist rather than systemic or or structural. Um, And linking with colleagues, I'll just say where I leave the article with is that you want to also collaborate with colleagues because you need to be careful. And so, you know, oftentimes I think we forget the context around schools. And this is, you know, I asked Mrs. Johnson, one of the three teachers in her final interview, why she didn't spend more time addressing race and racism in her classroom. The other two classes actually did a whole lesson on um, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, and she chose not to do that. And, And her answer was reminding me of where we were, which is where I purposely chose this. This was a middle class, predominantly white conservative community. And so pushback from students. I mean, not all the students were on board with this. Pushbacks from parents, pushback from the community. You know, if if it's true that racism is structural and systemic, if it's true that it empowers and privileges whites at the expense of people in color, then these kinds of curricular changes are not going to go unnoticed. And so you want to be supportive in the efforts. You want to get to their colleagues, have supportive administrators. But, but it's not like you're not going to get pushback. I mean, ultimately, you're asking students to see race and racism in a way that if they're working for social justice, they're in some sense disempowering themselves if they're white, middle class, home languages, English, et cetera. Um, And so I guess that's my advice. It's like, you know, go forward, work with your colleagues, but be careful. Well, John Mills, thank you so much for joining us today. We definitely enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I had a great time. As did we. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? I would say go to the UCR website. I can send you the link. You know, the faculty profile page has a list of my interest in research as well as uh, publications. Great. Well, we will link everyone to that and you can check out more of Dr. Will's work. And so thank you again so much for joining us. And we certainly do hope to continue the discussion online in other spaces and at UC Riverside. That's right. Coming this fall. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thanks. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat, tweet us 
at Visions of Ed. Also, talk to your colleagues, get planning with them. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.